0: Oh, really? Vampire! We take your candy! Count Dracula, I am... Dracula. Dracula! And I bid you welcome, Mr. Hart, to my Come. Our first award goes to the vampire for most blood drained in a single evening. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. fellow vampire lovers the sun is going down and you know what that means it's time for me to record another episode of my podcast the beautiful dead i'm your host lena nazari and as always if you'd like to reach out and talk to me which i love you can do that in a few different ways you can go to LenaNazari.com and on there you'll see links to all of my social media you can email me. That's lena at lena com. If you're saying to yourself, no offense, Lena, but I don't really care about you. I, I just like the vampire stuff. And you're just curious about more to do with the podcast. That's okay. No offense taken. The podcast does have its own social media. You can go to TikTok at Beautiful Dead Podcast. There I put together little Previews of each episode so people out there can see what I'm talking about this week. Uh, On Instagram, it's the Beautiful Dead Podcast where I post pictures of different things I talk about throughout the episode. And then Twitter at PA Beautiful Dead because for those of you who don't know, I am here in Pennsylvania. It's very cold right now. So I am at PA Beautiful Dead. And those are all ways that you can get a little more of the podcast, but also uh, feel free to message me. I just got somebody else who, who was asking for a specific um, thing to be covered, and that will be coming in the next year. So if you've reached out to me, I do, in fact, respond to everybody. So if you get a response email or a, a response DM, that is actually me. So, you know, be nice. So, last time I talked to you guys, I told you that I, I had a lot going on and I, I was fighting a little something, something. Well, guys, it turns out that it was COVID. I did test positive for COVID. Um, that could be a mix of things. I am vaccinated. However, I was working a lot. I was spreading myself very, very thin. I was not getting good sleep. I was not taking good care of myself. And of course, I take care of COVID patients. So, my job does come with risks, and one of those is, in fact, contracting uh, uh, illnesses, whether it be bloodborne or airborne. So it did happen. Um, and I have been taking it easy. I've been resting, do, doing a lot of sleeping, but now I'm back on track and I've gotten my diet back on track. And um, I'm just so grateful to the people who have been so supportive of me. And, you know, it's been tough. I've had to be separate from my kids. For the last week, we've stayed in different parts of the house and socially distanced and masked and stuff, and I'm sad to say because of my work schedule, I wasn't really around them a lot, so their risk of catching it was very minimal, which most of the time, that's a very sad thing to say, but at this point in time, it was actually a blessing that I wasn't around them, so... So I am getting over COVID, um, but I will be back to work here soon. When you guys hear this podcast, I will already be back to work, back at it on the front lines. So please, if you know anybody who's working in a hospital right now, you know just send them some love because things are tough. We're understaffed. We're around a lot of sick people. And even if we do everything right, we wear our PPE, we get vaccinated. You know, we're very exhausted. We don't take very good care of ourselves. We rarely eat. When we do, it's not good. We're not exercising. And unfortunately, you know, that makes you more susceptible to things. And then just sheer exposure. We're around it all the time so i'm lucky i made it this far into the pandemic without having to deal with it and i'm lucky that i had a very mild case and was able to um you know get an inhaler and then kind of sleep it off so i'm i'm lucky for that okay so i have a lot to talk about in this uh episode it's it's probably going to be a little bit of a long one but i i hope you guys don't mind I just reread Salem's Lot. Now, anybody who's my age who really came into their own in the 80s and 90s, probably is very familiar with Stephen King. Any people my age who love horror probably devoured Stephen King. I know I read him voraciously. I, I loved Stephen King. Now, I had not read Salem's Lot in a very long time. So to go back and reread it now as a vampire podcast host was such a different experience because now instead of just reading it for the sheer joy, I'm really looking at it and and um, paying attention to detail and things like that. So it was very enjoyable for me. It was like a whole different book now. Um, And for those of you who maybe say like, well, I'm not much of a reader. Hey, there's plenty of copies audio out there where you can just listen to somebody tell the story. But just for those of you who don't know, this was only his second book. This followed Carrie. So, um, wow. I mean, wow. What a, what a second book, right? So let's get into this. Um, it is it's a longer book. It's I think 440 pages is what is the version I read, and you know there's multiple versions out there, and I am gonna be comparing the book to the 1979 miniseries. Um, I will not be talking about the 2004 one with Rob Lowe. I am well aware that there will come a time where I'm going to start to run out of material and I'm going to have to force myself to watch the worst of the worst. And that is coming. Um, and the 2004 version of Salem's Lot is on that list of the worst of the worst. So someday I will be forced to review it, but right now I just... I can't. So we will be talking about the book in comparison to the 1979 miniseries, which if you guys remember, like I remember this from IT. Um, King would be adapted into like a series of mini series that would air on TV, like ABC or NBC. Um, It was usually two hours with commercials, and then it was done over two or three nights. So like it was done over two nights. It was done in two parts. And I remember vividly watching it. Now this predates me. So I just watched it, you know, streaming like most people. But, but that was how it would happen. So you would get halfway through the story, and then you'd have to wait a week to watch the second half. And uh, King miniseries usually pushed a lot of buttons. Really pushed a lot of people because, you know, he's scary. He's scary. And King has a lot of topics that aren't off limits for him. So even watered down for TV, there's still some things that would upset the general public. So we would hear about it for a while after it aired, but. This was one of those things, and it came on in 1979. Now, I'm not going to go into the cast. You can look it up because I really, I have almost five pages of notes in front of me. Normally, I'm running on three, so you know I have a lot to talk about. So for those of you who haven't read the book, I just want to give a quick synopsis so that you can kind of follow along with what I'm talking about. Ben spent four years of his childhood living in Jerusalem's Lot, which they call Salem's Lot for short. And that's in Maine, of course. And he always looks back on this time with curiosity because something happened to him when he was young. He went to this big spooky house on a hill called the Marston House that was, you know, well known in the area as being this haunted house. He went in as he was a young child, Um, Goes in on a dare and sees the ghost of Hubie Marston hanging. So now it's 25 years later. He's an author. He wants to return to town and write about this house. Um, One for the, you know, sale potential of the uh, of the literature itself, but also just to kind of deal with this thing that happened to him. When he shows up, he finds out that the house has already been bought by two men, and that's Kurt Barlow and his business partner, Richard Straker. Ostensibly, they are there to open an antique store in the town, but we ultimately discover that Barlow is an ancient vampire, and Straker is his familiar. The duo's arrival coincides with the disappearance of a young boy named Ralphie Glick, and then the death of his 12-year-old brother, Danny Glick, and Danny is the town's first vampire who was turned by Barlow. Barlow also turns the town dump custodian, Dud Rogers, and a telephone repairman named Corey Bryant. Danny turns other locals into the vampires, and that includes the graveyard digger, Mike Ryerson, a newborn baby named Randy McDougal, a man named Jack Griffin, and then Danny's mother, Marjorie. Danny fails to turn his classmate, Mark Petrie, who resists him by holding a plastic cross in Danny's face. And the backstory is that Mark is super into monsters, you know, the universal monsters we were all into as kids. So he is very knowledgeable about vampires and is able to recognize very quickly what's going on and hold this cross up. To fight the spread of the new vampires, Ben and Susan, the woman that Ben is falling in love with, are joined by Matt, this boy who knows all about monsters, and his doctor, Jimmy, along with Mark and the local priest, Father Callahan. Um, Sorry, I'm confusing myself now. <laughs> Mark is the boy. Matt is a town friend. Uh, and then the local priest, Father Callahan. Susan ultimately is captured by Barlow, who turns her, and then she is staked through the heart by Ben. When Father Callahan and Mark go to Mark's parents' house to explain the danger that the family is in, the power is cut off, Barlow appears, he kills Mark's parents, takes the boy hostage, Um, Callahan pulls out a cross in an attempt to drive him off and it works, but then Barlow sort of challenges him to throw the cross away and Callahan doesn't have enough, enough faith to fight him off. So he's soon overwhelmed by Barlow and then, and then Callahan is forced to drink Barlow's blood and sort of makes him unclean. And then when Callahan tries to re-enter the church, he receives an electric shock, preventing him from going inside. So then he sort of leaves Jerusalem's lot in shame. So he's not necessarily a vampire, but he's kind of doomed with the attribute of not being able to be around religious things and now, like, cursed to deal with what has happened to him forever. Matt suffers a fatal heart attack while Jimmy is killed when he falls from a rigged staircase and is impaled by knives that are set by the vampires. Um, Ben and Mark destroy Barlow, but are lucky to escape with their lives um, and forced to leave the town to the now leaderless vampires. The novel's prologue, which is set shortly after the end of the story proper, describes that Ben and Mark are flying across the country to a seaside town in Mexico. They're trying to overcome their ordeal. Then Mark is received into the Catholic church by a friendly local priest, confesses for the first time that they, what they've been through. And then the epilogue has the two returning to the town a year later, intending to renew the battle. Ben, knowing that there are too many hiding places for the vampire, starts a brush fire in the nearby woods to destroy the entire town. So you guys are going to hear me drinking throughout this because my throat is still so dry. So, That's in a nutshell, you know, anybody who's read Stephen King knows that there is a lot happening in his books. It's very hard to make a concise summary of what is happening because of the amount that is going on. But that's a quick synopsis so that you can kind of follow along with what I'm talking about. So let's let's start to break this down. okay? so let's talk about the appearance of the vampires. So this is where the book and the movie really differ the most In the book, um, he can appear, and I'm going to try not to mess up and say Marlow, because Marlow is the head vampire in 30 Days of Night. This one is Barlow, but we'll get to that. So if I mix myself up, I apologize. In the book, um, Marlow can sorry, look, I already did it. (laughs) Barlow, Barlow can appear young or old, and he's very human in appearance. So think of Gary Oldman's version of Dracula, you know, he can be young or he can be old. And then the ones that he turned look less human. Now, in the miniseries, it's the opposite. He looks like Count Orlock from Nosferatu. And if you take Count Orlock from Nosferatu and then paint him blue, that is what Barlow looks like in the series. And then in the miniseries, he speaks through his familiars and those he turns. He doesn't ever speak himself, and he claims to predate Christ. So that would make him thousands of years old. Now, for those of you who don't know... Um, he actually appears in other books of Stephen King's, and he does have a presence in the Dark Tower series. And in that, it's revealed you you find out that Barlow is a Type One vampire, quote unquote. So that makes him capable of being able to hibernate for centuries. He's very intelligent. He's very cunning. Um, and he appears more human than the other types of vampires, which are the Type Two vampires. So that is kind of flipped in the movie. Um, And then his appearance even seems to change towards the end of the novel into this like younger looking version of himself, like he's de-aging from the older way he appears earlier in the novel. So it's unknown if other type one vampires can shift into a human appearance like Barlow does. They don't really explain that. It's just mentioned offhandedly in the Dark Tower series. And then they are the ones who can make type two vampires which are sort of like your follower vampires. So we'll get back to that in a minute. I know I've probably lost all of you, but I promise I'm going to explain it. Blood is an absolute necessity for these vampires. I don't think we've talked about one yet that doesn't have to drink blood. Um, We never hear about them eating food once they're turned. So we assume it's all about blood for these vampires. Uh, And as far as fangs go, these vampires have two fangs, just like I like it. So um, one on each side, a, a long elongated canine crosses and holy items do play a part in this. Like classic vampire stories, the vampires are repelled by crosses; they can't enter churches, and then also holy water can be used as a weapon against them. How other, uh, however, unlike other stories, the cross in this one only works if you have faith. So that's kind of like the one from um, Fright Night where, you know, he has to have faith in order for the cross to work. So like I said, after a while of facing the cross that's in Father Callahan's hands, Barlow is actually able to take it and snap it. And he says to Barlow, sad to see a man's faith fail him, and then forces this guy to drink blood from him. So p- the cross does play a big part in this, in this world of vampires. Sunlight is pretty standard for these vamps. They can't be out in the sunlight. They have to be hidden away. So we assume that as far as sleeping goes, they just have to sleep away from the sunlight. Now, Barlow sleeps in a coffin and that's delivered to Salem's lot in this big, huge crate. And unbeknownst to a couple of local townsfolk, they like carry his, his coffin right into the house. Uh, As far as powers go, Barlow is super strong, like most vampires, and he does seem to be able to kind of mesmerize or brainwash humans. Um, We know that he can kind of speak through his other vampires, and they can kind of share like a group think. So he has the ability to brainwash. We also, in the miniseries, there's a very famous scene where Danny is scratching at Mark's window. Um, This scene scared me so bad as a kid. But there's there's like fog and smoke and it's backlit with like a blue light. And he is in vampire form and he's like floating outside of this kid's window scratching at it. So I guess in this miniseries, the vampires can fly as well. How are they made? So there's... They have to be, this is kind of the classic vampire story, right? They have to be drained completely and then they're turned into a vampire. So only in Father Callahan do we see a circumstance where, where the victim drinks the vampire's blood and that has some kind of uh, power over him and changes him. The rest of them are just drained and then they rise as a vampire. And that's pretty classic stuff. So for one of the characters, it happens over a series of nights. For other characters, it seems to happen all in one night. But that's how the vampires are turned. And that, of course, is a problem for humans because that means that you can make a lot of vampires pretty quickly. How do they die? Um, that is pretty standard stuff. Sunlight, fire, stake to the heart. I, I don't remember, and somebody, I'm sure you'll reach out to me if I'm wrong. I don't remember a uh, circumstance of decapitation in this book. I may be wrong. Like I said, it's a long book, but um, pretty standard stuff. Sunlight, fire, stake to the heart. Now, as for the rules, this is where I want to talk about the whole like type one, type two thing which every time I say it, I'm thinking of diabetes, but we're talking about this is King's version of like a master vampire and a, and a following vampire uh, or a vampire minion. In the Dark Tower series, Barlow is described as a type one vampire, which can create type twos. So my take on that is that the type one is a master. The type two is like a minion. Um, another important point is that Barlow is essentially invited to the town. He sets up, uh, Straker sets up this deal with the town real estate agent who's, like, very, very greedy and portrayed as a very bad person. And he accepts this deal that's way too lucrative and essentially sells the house to these men for a dollar, and that's the invitation. So he's kind of invited into the town. There's also a backstory with Hubie Marston, which I will get to later, that I think also might have paved the way for... um, for barlow to choose this town so he was invited into the town also another rule that i think does apply is the whole no reflection thing because um Mm -hmm. when danny's mother margie is being turned or like over the course of a few nights so she's like been drained a couple times by her son but she's not totally there yet she says to her husband um like i'm having these nightmares where Um, He comes to me and he suckles at my breast. And so that's that's where we know that he's feeding on her. And she's like, and I I think I'm going crazy because today I was in the bathroom looking in the mirror and I swear I was fading and I could see the bathtub behind me. So I think the whole no reflection thing does apply in this universe and that once they're fully turned, they don't reflect in the mirror anymore. Stephen King, if you ever listen to this, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know if I'm wrong. Oh, my God, I would die. You guys, if Stephen King ever heard this, I would absolutely die. Um, When Danny's mother... Oh, I just talked about that. So those are a couple of the quote-unquote vampire rules that we're able to get a handle on that seem to really line up with the classic stuff. I never hear anything about, like, can they cross running water? I never hear anything about garlic. Um, I never hear anything about them having to be invited in to the house in order to feed. Although thinking back, the grave digger was attacked outside. So you wouldn't have to be invited in there. Um The boy who, who was feeding on his mom, I guess he lived there. So, you know, did he have to be invited in? I don't know. You know what, now I'm, I'm going to fall down a rabbit hole, but I, I don't, I don't, there was nothing in the book that really told me they had to be invited in. No, they don't, because at one point the boy feeds on a baby and I know he wasn't invited in. So, all right, moving on, because I could talk about this forever. Good or bad, these vampires are all bad. There's no redeeming qualities to them at all. As soon as they are turned, they are out for blood. Nobody in this book overcomes their vampire nature to try and retain their humanity or help the humans. There's none of that. They are all bad. Like I said, they feed on a baby. They, like, like Barlow attacks kids. Nobody, nobody, nobody gives a crap in this world. So they're bad, bad, bad. All right, let's get into some tropes. Like I said, you know, it's tough for me to talk about anything I hate because I love Stephen King so much, but I am going to get into it because, you know, I owe you guys that. So, all right, tropes I love. I love the idea of a cunning vampire master that works through familiars to sort of prepare the way for their arrival. We see this in Salem's Lot. We see it in 30 Days of Night. There's actually a lot of similarities between the two, which is why I'm stumbling over the whole Barlow Marlow thing. Um, In 30 Days of Night, it's it's, um, the stranger who comes and paves the way. And then in Salem's Lot, it's Straker. And then we have Marlowe and Barlow, like I said. The town ends up being overrun by vampires and has to be burned to the ground, and that's in both of them. And actually, as I'm talking now, I see a lot of Midnight Mass in this as well. And we already knew that the writer of Midnight Mass was very inspired by Stephen King, like many people my age. Um, we even saw like a little teaser for Midnight Mass. If you watch Gerald's game on um, Netflix... Which, by the way, Stephen King, if you're ever listening to this, Gerald's Game, I think, is the one book of his that messed me up the most. I read it as a young woman. I was in my early 20s. I was still very new to sex and what do I like and what do I not like and like still curious about all that. And I read this book about a woman being handcuffed to the bed and her husband dies and she's like handcuffed to the bed for days. Oh my God, I was so traumatized. I don't think I'd ever let anyone handcuff me to the bed. And um, you can thank Stephen King for that. So if you go watch uh, the version on Netflix, which is phenomenal, by the way, she actually has a paperback on her shelf of Midnight Mass. So that was a teaser so that we would know that that person who wrote and directed Gerald's Game would then go on to do Midnight Mass. So there is a lot of similarities. And we also know that um, that the writer of of Midnight Mass... Did a lot of homage to King. If you go back and watch Midnight Mass, I bet you can catch a lot of King references. Anywho, I gotta move on. I'm I'm so far off track. Um, I also love that Barlow exists in other books. I love that in Stephen King's universe, he has a lot of things from previous books that show up in current books. For example, if you read uh, Insomnia you will see a reference to gage's shoe from pet cemetery so stuff like that so i love the idea that this is one huge universe where all of these villains exist simultaneously oh my god i'm so far off track i'm so sorry uh the whole point is that i love when vampires are cunning and they're not just mindless animals um I also am very, I don't want to say I love this, but I'm intrigued by the idea of a baby vampire. Uh, one of the things I love about King is that nothing is off limits for him. As I was reading this book, I, I had forgotten, obviously, as a young adult reading the book, I just cared about the vampire stuff. Um, but now I read it as a, as an adult, and especially as a mother. And there's several scenes, I mean, like right out of the gate of this exhausted teen mom punching her baby in the face, getting frustrated and overwhelmed and just punching him. It was, I was like, wow. And that, I mean, that's stuff that's out there, you know, and then she lies to her husband so that she doesn't get beaten by him. And the cycle repeats. And the fact that he taps into that and uh, it's not off limits, but then to have her baby be fed on and turned I mean, like the scene where she finds the baby dead and all of a sudden all his bruises like are instantly gone because they describe the baby as having bruises and fang marks. And then all of a sudden the baby's like pristine. So that's how we know the baby's turning. Um, And she's like frantically trying to feed this baby and she's trying to give him like pudding, I think. And she pulls back his, pulls back his lips to try and open his mouth and screams. And we assume that's when she sees fangs, but The idea of that, I I fell down such a rabbit hole thinking about like, how would you take care of a vampire baby? And you'd have to take care of it forever. And so unlike other things like AHS Hotel or Twilight, this baby is fed on and turned, not born that way. So I just think that's so interesting. I don't know that I would want to tackle that subject, but it's definitely interesting. All right, tropes I hate. I love you, Stephen King. I love you so much, but I hate the whole faith will save you. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I mentioned this in Fright Night. I, I, I've mentioned it before. I don't know what I hate more. Faith will save you or love will conquer all. I also hate when love is what saves everybody at the end. Um, but I just don't, I, I understand that it's speaking to the whole good versus evil. I understand that. But why doesn't the sheer existence of God, why is that not enough? Why does the person holding the cross have to believe in it? I don't understand. Either it works or it doesn't. Ugh, I don't know. The whole thing. I, I I don't like the faith will save you. Either crosses work or they don't. Um, the fact that the wielder has to believe in the cross, I, I don't know. I don't like it. That's my hot take, everybody. All right, let's move on before Stephen King gets any madder at me. How, let's do, let's do our ratings, okay? This is what everybody's waiting for, right? How evil or scary are the vampires of Salem's Lot? I'm gonna stay in line here with our 30 days a night compatriots. These vampires are instinct-driven feeding machines. They are only out to kill. They don't care about anything else. And so the vampires of Salem's Lot get a solid 9 out of 10 stakes to the heart. They're not redeemable in any way. And we know that because Ben has to stake the woman he's fallen in love with. She's not going to overcome her vampireness because of love. He stakes her. Um, They overrun the town very quickly. They can only be stopped by just burning the whole place down, which we saw in Midnight Mass as well as 30 Days a Night. Uh, uh, Marlow is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, he is able to overcome the faith of Father Callahan. He dooms him to walk the earth and remember that his faith was too weak to save everybody. So this poor guy can never walk into a church again. He gets to just like remember that he screwed up. He doesn't care about killing or turning children. The very first person he feeds on is a very young boy. He snatches him up and eats him. I mean, Straker does it for him. Straker grabs the boy and brings him to the house, but still, he probably said, go get me a boy. Um, they have no rules. They um, have this, like, group consciousness always, so that makes it hard for the humans to survive because if one vampire sees you, the whole, the whole, all the vampires know where you are. I mean, that's what I took from the whole thing. If I'm wrong, let me know. The only weakness they have that gives humans an advantage is um, the sun. They can't be in the sunlight. So, so if you can survive till morning, you're good for a little while. But then you're right back to trying to fight to survive. So um, they end up having to just like destroy the whole town to destroy everybody. Because like I said, they recognize there's so many hiding places in this town. And the other thing too is unlike other vampire worlds, When the master dies, it does not kill all of the uh, followers. So we see that in some other things. The master dies and everyone turns back. That is not the case in this one. So you might be able to do it, you know, kill the master vamp, but you still have a lot other to contend with. So that's a big problem for human beings. And they do spread very fast. You don't have to go through like a whole big process to turn them you feed you drink they turn you know and and it sounds like they're able to do several a night which ps as a nurse i can tell you is a lot of freaking blood to drink how but uh, that's neither here nor there so if they can turn multiple people in one night oh my god i just thought something horrible which is i guess the baby really didn't have much blood so that was like an appetizer (laughs) it's horrible (laughs) but honestly like they turn multiple grown adults in one night that's a lot of blood to drink Maybe vampires have a really fast metabolism in this world. I don't know. Or they like puke it up and go on to the next one. Oh, so many questions. Steven, if you're listening, I have so many questions. Um, so that's it. Nine out of ten stakes to the heart. Man, I'm, I'm so unfocused in this one. How sexy or alluring are the vampires of Salem's Lot? Well, I'm going to stay in line with my whole 30 days and night rating here and give them a 1 out of 10 onks for sexiness and allure. Now remember, when I'm raiding vampires, what I'm looking at is their ability to overwhelm their prey with their attractiveness and draw their victims in with their sheer seductive powers. I'm also looking at is is sex even a part of these vampires world, you know? If you look at True Blood or Vampire Diaries, you see they have a sex drive, it's part of their appeal, humans are drawn to them. But with these vampires in Salem's Lot, there's none of that. None. Sex is not even in the picture. So, um they get a one out of 10 onks for sexiness because I'm only giving them the honorary one point for being vampires. So I want to talk about a couple of things here. Um, they in the mini series. Barlow has this power of almost like telekinesis that is not in the book. And in the mini series, he doesn't speak. He speaks through those he's made um, and that is not in the book. That's not the biggest issue. In the book, Barlow is this classy, refined, enticing, cunning creature that should be feared. He is a worthy adversary for everybody who's trying to stop him. He's not really like that in the in the miniseries. In the miniseries, he's more of a monster, like uh, straight out of, a, a, you know, a children's tail kind of monster. and I think that really took a lot away from him. Obviously there's a lot of characters that are cut from the book um, in order to make the movie. I mean if you did a full king novel without some kind of massive runtime um, or seriously disturbing the normies, uh, you it would be impossible. So I, I understand. The only thing I have to say is they really did Father Callahan a huge disservice in the miniseries. They cut him down so much. He had such a big part in the book. His um, inevitable, you know, not demise because he lives, but the way that he is um, bested, by this master vampire is so sad and heartbreaking and evil and terrible. And you need to know more about Father Callahan leading up to that and know that he was truly trying to save people. But he, in the end, he just wasn't strong enough. What a huge disservice. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Brian White. I actually found an article, um, discussing, the movie versus the miniseries and he said something that I agree with a thousand percent and so I really wanted to give him credit because other people have had this thought but in the book I mean they really missed out in the miniseries and and I've heard tales that there is a remake coming in the new year now I'm going to talk more about that in my first episode of season two, so that will come out in January, um, I really hope that they line up with what they did with it, because it was phenomenal. And so I hope that they're gonna have that same sort of um, creativity and imagination and really utilize what we have now to really bring this story to life because nobody has done it right yet. And this is what I'm talking about specifically. In the book, the mystery of Hubie Marston and that house is so intriguing and interesting. I was, they are remiss to not use it. They mention it very quickly in the miniseries. It's sort of an offhanded conversation and it's never really talked about again. In the book, it's such a big part of it. That house um, is such a big part of it. And the backstory is that Hubie Marston owned the Marston house and he inevitably killed his wife and his kids and then hung himself. There was rumors that he was involved in, in being inappropriate with young boys and then murdering them and that there were boys in the basement. And that lines up with, um, now I've confused myself, Barlow, (laughs) Barlow or Marlow. Um, that lines up with Barlow, who also feeds on young boys. Then we come to find out that there was actually um, letters back and forth between Barlow and Marston that were burned right before he committed this murder-suicide. And so if I understand correctly, the the letters somehow invited this vampire to town. And that's how he ends up choosing this town for his killing grounds. And I think that was such an important part that was completely left out of any of the miniseries. And I would love, I would read a whole book just on Hubie Marston. And what led up to everything and how did he know Barlow and how was he a part of what happened and how did this all tie together? They really missed out. They really missed out. So uh, when the remake comes um, in 2022 or 2023, I really, really hope they use some of that Marston story because of that even the house, the house in the book is a character in and of itself. So I, this ended up not being quite as long as I was worried about. I'm at a solid 38 and a half minutes right now. That's not too bad. I've done longer, but there was so much I wanted to talk about. Uh, This is only the second time I've discussed a book on this podcast and I have more to come. I have, I'm looking at a stack right next to me. Um, I have not decided yet what my next one will be, Um, but I'm leaning towards Dracul by Dacre... Uh, Stoker, the grandson of Bram Stoker, as being my next one. Um, But there's so many books I want to talk about. But as you guys can imagine, to sit down and watch a movie is an hour and a half. To read a book is going to take a lot longer than that. So it really, I have to choose wisely. But it was so exciting to read a book, especially a book from my childhood, and then really dig at it. um, Now that I have this and I get to do this. It was a lot of fun. So I knew I had a lot to talk about. But I will not ramble on any longer. I highly recommend, uh, if you haven't read the book, um, to to get it and reread it again. There's so much that I couldn't even talk about. Um, and like I said, there's audiobooks everywhere. And in the course of doing this, I discovered there was a BBC like radio show of this in which um, Doug Bradley played Barlow which oh my god I'm gonna have to track that down I think it was from the early 2000s but that was also a very exciting thing to find so this is the second to last episode of the season I'm gonna round out this season with a huge one which is true blood I'm obsessed I'm watching it for the third time so um, please stay tuned for that that will be out in a week and then I'm gonna take a break for Christmas and I will be back in the New Year's with a very exciting episode that I think you guys are all going to love. In the meantime, please continue to reach out to me. Tell me what you'd like to hear. Um, I have a two-page list of stuff I eventually want to tackle. If you reach out to me and it's at the bottom of the list, I will move it to the top for you. That is how Blood Rain got moved to the top. That will be happening in January of 2022. Uh, Because somebody asked for it. So just uh, reach out to me and I'm happy to respond and engage with you. Well, I'm going to go back to getting some rest. And like I say to all of my fans, I wish you wicked hugs and bloody kisses as well as happy holidays. Good evening.